0: You are listening to Zen and the Art of Triathlon.
1: All right, I'm over at Gary's house, and he has a homemade Cold water... What is it called? Cold, pl- Cold plunge. Yeah. Cold plunge? Well, it's a... Yes, it's a...
0: Yeah, it's a 16 cubic foot yeah. Amana freezer that I sealed. Uh, we run ozone to, uh, to clean it. There's filters on the inside. Mm-hmm. Right now, it's running at 34.3
1: degrees. And I'm going to try to get in this. How deep... I okay, I'm afraid so to touch. I don't want to touch gonna, it with my gonna, hands. You're
0: going to go in this way. Uh-huh. You're going to go leg in, leg in, stand, sit down. Keep your feet up here. Look, most if you want all the way up. To, it's real mm-hmm. important when you're cold plunging to get exposure to the back of your neck. But one of the things we got to remember when we get in here: in through the nose, out through the mouth. We are not panicking. We're breathing. We've got to remember to breathe. Because okay. so your fight or flight mechanism will kick in mm-hmm. and say, "Oh no, I don't need to be in here." So okay. you're. You know they said Breathe your way through it
1: If those people on the Titanic Just practiced the Wim Hof method
0: Yeah they would have been healthier <laughs> Instead of been, drowning Well they would have been healthier And then they would have drowned <laughs> <laughs> Breathe Also I haven't
1: touched the water I was about to touch the water with no, just, just get in And I figured Just I get, just get, in. Gonna get no,
0: in No you're not you get, okay. you gotta, you're, you're, you're gonna psych yourself out Okay This is mind over matter
1: Oh how long do I have to stay in for?
0: You tell me You'll tell me when you get in there When you need to get out
1: I'm putting my left foot in
0: Really cold? Yeah. You're, th- you're overthinking it. Right okay. then. in. <laughs> <laughs> Maximum benefit, breathe. Now you're not breathing. There you go. Have you, have you experienced a rush of euphoria yet? A what to my what? I need rush of euphoria. Clarity. I oh, think yeah, I'm going to be okay. <sighs> well, you're, yeah, you're going to be okay.
1: <laughs> you never know, dude. Well, I mean... <laughs> All right, that is just a little bit of audio from me getting into a cold water therapy dunk tank that was 34 degrees, and I sat in it for just over four minutes. And I'm gonna play the full audio of that for you here in just a little bit, but we also have a couple other things to cover. Honestly, I had a whole show recorded that I was gonna put out a couple of weeks ago and then just one thing after another started happening that was really interesting. And I kept saying, man, we need to put out a new show or save it for a show and add it into the show. So we're gonna mix it all in here. One of the other things that popped up was I got my hands on the new Zwift Hub Trainer One Edition. And that's the one that has the single cassette on the back. It's not a single cog on the back, not even a full cassette. And it caused quite a stir because it also comes with virtual shifting and you can easily swap out bikes on this thing and then just keep the chain line in one place and never shift your bike and then use this little remote shifter. And you have 24 gears in Zwift that it will shift internally for you. And it's really cool. And now I've gotten, I think, uh, two rides, maybe three rides by now on it And I also figured out a problem with it that triathletes should know about and a semi-solution. And also, if we gang up and put group pressure on Zwift, we'll be able to fix this problem that is specifically posed for triathletes on their tri-bikes. And then also, I've already recorded my review of the women's professional race at Kona for the Ironman World Championships. And that was such an awesome race. And I just want to add on to it a couple other things. I was listening to some show and somebody mentioned that they thought that the race uh, was boring or they heard the race was boring. But I have to say that I couldn't disagree more. And I think most people say they couldn't disagree more. The race was awesome. And the reason that it would not be interesting is because you have somebody winning right from the tape, you know, and they're just off the front. So there's no like combat, I guess, back and forth of people trading positions and people running each other down and trying to pass each other. Lucy led it from the, from the beginning. Well, I think that person that made that comment didn't understand the context of what was going on is Lucy Charles Barkley has come in second place four times. And so everybody was glued to the screen Watching Lucy take the lead and then just on pins and needles to see if she would be able to hold on to it. You know, it, she was running this crazy marathon pace, but there was somebody else running a little bit faster. So there's that. And then also, there is a controversy going on. There's been announced an investigation by the ITA. I forgot the name of the organization. But anyway, they're an anti doping organization. And They announced they're investigating Sam Laidlow, who won the Ironman World Championship men's pro race in Nice, France, a few weeks ago. And it turns out it's getting a little complicated and a little bit messy and a little bit ugly. And we don't need to add to the drama. I'll just explain to you what's going on from what I know. Is another pro triathlete or his family like his dad, maybe, supposedly is the one that made the accusation that Sam Laidlow is doping or was doping and when you report that to the anti-doping authority there's something that's not clear do they start an investigation just on hearsay because there's arguing like on the slow twitch forums you can't start an investigation on just somebody calling in and saying they think something's going on you you know you just it just doesn't work that way they would have to be investigating people all the time beyond their resources so there must be some sort of credible, credible suspicion or some, some thread of truth, some sort of evidence, maybe eyewitnesses or, you know, something before you would launch an investigation. And I don't know, I don't know which way, you know, it it goes. Can it just be somebody calling in anonymously? And then pretty much, (laughs) this doesn't sound like it. That would be enough, you know, because that would just be a really easy way to ruin somebody's life is just to call in like you would actually need some sort of proof. But I don't know if that's if that's the case either. And Sam Laidlow went on Instagram and wrote a really aggressive post about how he would never do that. And he's really disgusted and horrified and disappointed and whatever, all that stuff uh, about being accused for doping because he's never doped. But You can't really go on that either because we've seen this happen before with Lance Armstrong aggressively going after people and saying that there was no way that he doped. So then it seems like Sam thought better of it and just took the post down. But it's, you know, screenshot. The internet seems to be forever. So you could probably go read it if you wanted to. But I can tell you, a lot of us have been through this kind of stuff before, you know, with the Lance Armstrong era and all that. And... You just can't believe what people say either way. (laughs) People are so good at putting on a face of either guilt or innocence or whatever that you just can't say and it just has to come down to proof. So we're sitting here right now thinking it's possible that he did. But if they can't provide any actual proof, then we're back to it's just somebody's word against somebody else's. And it's unfortunate because it makes the sport look bad. And let's say that, you know, Sam didn't dope at all and I would be furious too and be posting on Instagram (laughs) about how mad I am. So you could totally understand either way. But as of this recording, we don't know yet and probably won't know for a while the results of the investigation. So it's just something to kind of know about and pay attention to, keep an eye on and just wait around until there's some actual proof before you believe anything one way or the other. All right. Let's go back to the Zwift Hub One trainer. So this thing just came out and it's a really interesting piece of equipment. Zwift, about a year ago, released their own trainer. They were gonna release an an entire indoor bike, you know, kind of like a Peloton bike. They scrapped that idea. They co-opted, rebranded another company's trainer. I think it's the Jet Black. I forgot exactly what it's called. It's a decent trainer, like really nice one. Uh, originally was priced around $800, $900. So Zwift struck a deal with them and has made their own version of the same trainer, which was nice because you can just go look at reviews of the original trainer and see if, you know, you like, like it or not and if it held, held up nicely. And, it, and apparently it did. DC Rainmaker does great reviews. He said it's a great trainer. And they messed with the assembly instructions, the color matching and just improved it a lot simplified so much stuff and put out a really great trainer and you know zwift's real place of profit is not trainers but it's the software the zwift online video game where you ride around with everybody and it's amazing absolutely love it and the trainer is more of a gateway drug if you make if you take a pretty good trainer make it easy to assemble and easy to use easier than anybody else's they're going to go with that one and then it's got your logo across the leg of the thing and you do a bunch of marketing that it goes with your software it'll actually work with anybody's software but it works with your software video game then boom you've got more subscribers and you're making more money so that's what zwift did they dropped the price of the trainer down to i think it was five hundred dollars four ninety nine And it turned out it was a really smart move. There was a lot of people that want to do a trainer and and want to ride Zwift, but, you know, the trainer cost was just, you know, too high. And so when you drop the price down to that from 800 down to 500, well, boom, you've just opened up a whole new uh, potential market of people and ends up being worth it because now you got subscribers. You're going to make the money back on them paying for the monthly subscription to Zwift and yada, yada, yada worked out. That all started about a year ago. People really like the trainer. It's got a few little quirks kind of here and there. Every trainer does because they're all different. Nothing special. And then, I don't know, maybe around the same time, they introduced these like video game controllers that you can rubber band strapped, strap to your handlebars of a road bike. And this is where we start getting into some de- important details here. And that has all kinds of controls on it. It looks like you know, like a Xbox controller split in two. One on each side. And it's got, you know, turn left, right, menu buttons, and also eventually they introduced virtual shifting. So instead of shifting with your bike's gears, you can shift virtually with the controller and they built into the Zwift software twenty-four gears and you can distinctly feel them. It's virtual. Uh so you don't have to shift your bike. So you save wear and tear on your drivetrain or your bike without as much shifting. It just puts it all into the software and the and the uh, indoor trainer itself. And that's a pretty big hit. People really like this. Uh, the controllers are about $100. Bucks. Uh, but again, downside is they only work on drop bar road bikes because of the way they're shaped. So as a triathlete on a tri bike or let's say you're on a mountain bike, pretty much you're out of luck and you just keep going the same old way. So all this is going on and we don't buy one because we sink our money in to a Wahoo kicker for Kai a year and a half ago about. And it's a great trainer. He's loving it. So he doesn't need a trainer. I kind of need a new trainer, but not exactly. We had a lightning strike (laughs) near the house about three years ago, probably now. And the power surge broke my trainer, but only in one small area. And it's kind of funny. I have a Doretto... Or Elite is the name of the brand. Uh, Duretto is the model, and it was one of the first trainers that was had everything, uh, but at a lower price. And back then, it was about nine hundred dollars. It it's great trainer, but the Power Surge fried the part of the motherboard, controller, or whatever that controls the resistance. Right. So what I noticed was I'm riding Zwift. And as I go uphill, there's no increased resistance. I go downhill, there's no decreased resistance. I'm like crap. And everything else works though, right? It'll read power, transmit power, cadence, and they use that, you know, for speed and to the, to Zwift, but Zwift can no longer send how much resistance to implement back to the trainer. And I fiddled with it for a little bit and it, turned out for a couple hundred, few hundred bucks, I could replace the motherboard. I just never did because I figured out I could just ride my bike anyway and just do shifting and I can increase the shifting. I just do the reverse of what you would normally do is when I start going uphill, I shift into harder gears and then it makes it harder. And in a way, it's kind of cool because I can um, control the resistance if I want to have almost no resistance If you know, to me, to what I want to do. And as a long distance triathlete, long distance cyclist, you learn that the more you can control the workout and how much resistance to give, the better off you are. And also if you're a coach like I am and you're self-coached, there's days where I just want to ride totally flat and not stress out my body a lot. So with the bike set up like that, I can just ride anywhere and then (laughs) just never change gears. And it's always. It's always uh, easy to, to mild to medium. No matter where I ride, I have to ride that ugly desert, you know, loop all over and over and over again. It's fine a couple times, but then, you know, it's the desert and it's barren, you know. It's not something you want to wake up to every morning when you do your trainer ride sometimes. You want to ride in the forest. So anyway, I was in the market for a new trainer, but just wasn't, you know, top priority. But lo and behold, something happened and I managed to get my hands on... The, not only the Zwift Hub, but the Zwift Hub 1. And like I said earlier, the interesting thing about this trainer, and it seems to be the only one that's doing it, is it only has one one cog on the back. But also what it shifts with is a little puck with a up and down button on it, a battery in it, so it's wireless. And it will shift in Zwift for you. And it comes with rubber bands, the silicone bands, to um, strap it somewhere on your bike. And because you can have shift virtually with twenty-four gears, you don't really need more than one cog on the back, right? And then with the simplification and ease of assembly and reassembly and removing axles and putting different width axles in, it's all color-coded again and matched. It's like really cool, and you all of a sudden what you've got is a trainer where you can swap out bikes on it if you have multiple bikes in the household that have different size cassettes. You got 11 speed, you got 12 speed, you got a nine speed, a 13 speed, doesn't matter. You got single speed, doesn't matter. At most, you do a what you take the one bike off, might have to go from like a quick release axle to a through axle. And there's a little measuring thing so that you can, measure real quickly throw the other bike on load up boom no problems at all with having a certain cassette and that's the way the these indoor trainers usually are you, you mount a cassette on the back or it comes with one and that's the one you got you know so it'll like my Duretto has an 11 speed on it right now and emily's bike is a 10 speed so she can't ride the 11 speed and shift gears stuff on it because her derail her rear derailleur is a 10 speed with this new trainer, it doesn't matter. You just put it like kind of in the middle. You can tell when it's, when it's lined up or not, and then just shift with this little remote. So, okay, that's cool. Some people started calling it a game changer. And I was like, well, I don't know if it's really a game changer, but I decided to hold my opinion until I wrote it. And that's why I put off making a show, wrote it a couple of times. And there's definitely some game changing things going on with it. I don't necessarily know if it's the single cog that's the game changer so much because a lot of what we just talked about you could do anyway as long as you have the virtual gears and the little and a and a remote to shift you could just do anyway if you get the full cassette version so they, they make the full cassette version as well and you can for the same price you can order whatever cassette you want on the back i guess within limits they say you know i want it with a 10 speed and they'll put a 10 speed on it 11-speed, 12-speed. I don't know what the the full range is that they'll put on that thing. But anyway, if you have that remote or the play shifters, you theoretically could put a bike on the trainer with the full cassette and just not shift. (laughs) You know what I mean? And you're actually kind of limiting yourself by doing the one cog uh, setup in a weird way. It might be better to actually get the one with the full cassette and then have a way to shift uh, virtually as well and then you would have the 24 gears virtually plus your 11 by two front chain rings I mean what is that if there wasn't any overlap you're talking about you know like 42 44 gears 46 gears <laughs> and you don't need that many so anyway I put the trainer together and it was true it only took a few minutes to put the trainer together it was so simple and then I turned on Zwift And because I was using the Zwift Hub trainer, it had this interesting option, you know, when it picks up heart rate and your power, you know, showing you like what to connect to. There's this option that says, well, how do you want to control the game? I guess maybe that's been there for a little bit. I just kind of ignored it because I didn't have it. You want to use the game controllers, right? Well, there's two types of game controllers now. There's the one that looks like the Xbox one that's cut in half that only works on road bikes. And then there's this little blip shifter up and down button puck thing now. So you select that, in my case, I select that. But I was already noticing a problem, I think before I even got started. And the problem is that triathlon bikes either have shifting way out in front, and you gotta reach really far to shift, or if you have electronic, that's if you have mechanical, if you have electronic shifting, you have shifting in way out front and also where your hands are on the bullhorn, bullhorn bars. And when electronic shifting came out, I jumped on it super fast because I immediately recognized it as a safety issue and a convenience issue. If you have to take your hands off your brakes to reach way out front to shift, like we've been doing forever, you now no longer have your hands in a place to control the bike. You're riding with one hand to shift and you're stretched way out to do it. And also you can't shift while riding on the the bullhorns. The cow, whatever they are called. Anyway, like when you're riding around corners and you're sitting upright and you're not in the aero position anymore and you're, you're taking a turn or whatever and it starts going uphill or you're slowing down and you, or you're, I don't know, accelerating because it starts going downhill. You can't shift gears on a mechanical shifting tri bike like that until you get back into the tri position or you reach way out in front of you. And lots of people have had plenty of wrecks doing that. And you're like, oh, well, it's indoors. How difficult could it be to you know, reach out and shift well, the thing is, is you're on a tri bike indoors. You're locked into a trainer, and it torques the frame every time that you ride with one hand and then reach way out in front of you to shift. So it is a far superior setup to be able to shift on the either out on the extensions or at the bullhorns by the brakes on a tri bike specifically. And the thing with Zwift is almost all their courses, because they're trying to entertain people, have a lot of terrain in them, a lot of variation. And you end up shifting gears a lot. So you're in the middle of shifting gears. And also you've got a computer set up next to you. You have towels, headbands, uh, computer mouse, all this stuff. And it ends up being like really inconvenient to have to have only one spot to shift. And it's way more convenient to have two spots to shift. So I thought I'm going to do some digging around and see if I can get a second click uh, thing. And then I can put one out front and one on the... On the handlebars by the brake, right? On my tri-bike. I have a uh, Trek speed concept, by the way. And with electronic shifting. I start doing a little bit of research. I go to like Zwift's page to try to order a second clicker. You can't. It's not available. You have to order the clicker and the cassette co- single cog thing at the same time. And right now it's like 50 $60, which is too much anyway. But pretty soon it's going to go back up to $80 after they're done with the intro price. And I'm like, well, I'm going to ride and see... If maybe I'm just being picky or if I'm crazy, you know, something like that and ride with the, uh, with just one clicker and see if it's tolerable. And also I work in the computer hardware software industry. And I know that just because something exists out there, does not mean it will work. (laughs) Right. And I'm not going to spend money on this thing, uh, buying a second clicker, unless I actually can prove that it works first, that you can pair two of these shifters before I spend money on buying one for $60 or whatever. So I do my first ride and it was both awesome and disappointing at the same time. Okay, the virtual shifting thing is super cool. And the coolest part of it is that you can shift gears while coasting or at a dead stop. So you come to a stop, normally with your bike, you come to a stop and you coast, you forget to shift down to an easier gear well, as you start pedaling, you're like pedaling through heavy mud, right? Not with this. You can shift down to first gear, second gear, and get going like it's super, super easy because it's all virtual and it's internal. It, you don't need to shift your der- derailleur around. Um, quite a few times, you'll mistakenly shift using your old shifters. And the cog has a, um, it has like this V-shaped conical thing on either side of it. And it, it'll make a bunch of racket, but the chain won't come off. And you're like, oh crap, I need to put the chain, you know, and you shift back to where, where it was. It's a 14 tooth, so that's about where it is on your chain line. And while I'm riding, though, I keep moving this virtual puck shifter around on my bike to try to figure out a place to put it, and I cannot find a place to put it that's usable. If I put it on my bullhorns, I've already got shifter buttons there that are in the best spot, so it's kind of silly, and then. So, so I have to put them like at this weird, awkward angle and I'm kind of like, eh, whatever. But if I had, if I had to, it would work. I'd figure that one out. So I'm riding on that and then I would get in the arrow position. And then while I'm riding along, every time I have to shift, I have to pull one arm out of arrow position to reach back down to my right, down and back to my right to shift every single time. And like I said, in Zwift, you shift a lot and I'm like, this sucks, dude, <laughs> I've had electronic shifting on my bike since 2016, 2017, maybe. And I'm used to it and it's fantastic. And I'm like, this is definitely a downgrade to have to reach different places to shift. So then I tried moving, I moved the shifter out to the, to the, um, end of the extension. And well, now if I want to shift, I have to, uh, and I'm riding on the bullhorns because i'm messing with something you know i'm sitting upright for a second or or quite a while sometimes warm up right when you're warming up you're sitting upright before you get in the air position i gotta reach way out and shift like i'm riding my bike from 2011 you know or 2006 and i'm like this this sucks dude what (laughs) what is going on man they should have packed this thing with two shifters they should have asked are you do you want two of these clickers and then uh you know pack two in Put one out there. Are you, like, are you a triathlete? Are you one of these horrible people that does three sports? And you're riding a tri? Are you riding a tri bike? Then we'll pack uh, two shifters in this thing. And I'm like, okay. And I put it in between. I put it in the middle, right? Where it's in neither spot. It's kind of like at the base of the extensions. Well, then it's kind of like under the towel that I use to protect my bike from sweat. And also when I shift, I'm I, I go from having it. Uh, where I can shift 50% of the time to uh, 0% of the time of where my hands happen to be, because it's in neither place where my hands happen to be. So at that point, I'm like, you know what I'm gonna try to do? I'm gonna mount it to my index finger. And it worked, and it was awesome. I don't think it's a long-term solution, but in the meantime, for you triathletes that are riding a tri bike and you've only got the one clicker, this is pretty cool. Solution, um, because it might start to irritate your finger, I think, be too tight, be too loose. You want to, it might get sweat into the thing, you know, and ruin it. And I guess it's like, a, it's like an inch and a half across, like a puck, a little black puck. It looks about the size of a watch without the um, band on it with two buttons. So if you mount it on the middle knuckle of your, of your index finger with the buttons left and right, you can shift with your thumb by pressing one of those two buttons. And then now the shifting is anywhere that your hand happens to be. It doesn't matter. And this is glorious. This is so cool. I saw years ago that SRAM when they came out with their button shifters and they're, they're totally wireless and you can put them anywhere on your handlebars. Some people talked about putting them in their, in their, in their glove or like on the side of their helmet or something. I don't know if that ever really took off or not, but I remembered that and I was like, dude, this is so cool. So the moment when I realized this is even better than, than nothing, than the, than having two shifters, (laughs) I would still want the two shifters, you know, so I have permanent mounts, but then uh, maybe I'll put one of them, you know, like on my finger, but I'm riding and I'm sitting upright and I'm playing some music or something like that. So I'm using my computer mouse off to my right. I don't know what I was doing. I was doing something where my hands weren't on the handlebars, And the resistance started to increase painfully because it started going uphill. And I was in the middle of doing something, which happens a lot when you're training indoors. You could be on the phone, replying to a text message, you know, I don't know, all kinds of stuff. And I was like, oh yeah, I can shift like right now. And I shifted into an easier gear and then continued on with my little thing. And then went back to right and I go, oh, this is a game changer. This is really cool. And then a little while later, I was riding no hands for some reason. I say I keep headbands and I sweat a lot. So I go through headbands. I'll go through like a two, three headbands and a workout and wristbands too. And this is all to protect my bike. And I was reaching for a water bottle and, and uh, I'm, I'm riding no hands, sitting upright. And normally that's only good for like 10, 20 seconds before you need to shift a gear. You got to lean back, grab, you know, shift and... So you're constantly disrupting the thing that you're trying to do. But I'm riding no hands and I'm shifting at the same time as, the, as I want and as needed. And it's awesome, dude, you can literally ride no hands sitting upright on Zwift now, shifting virtually so you don't have to reach over and slump back down into the, to the biking with your hands on the bars position. You can sit upright, stretch, arch your back, you know, and still shift because the shifter is mounted on your on your hand instead of on the bars. It is crazy, and so I've totally fallen in love with that, right and like, that's so cool, but I still want two shifters because I'm a little concerned that i'm gonna get sweat into this thing, and also you want shifters on your on your handlebars too. It's just natural, right? and also I'm very, very curious. so I do a bunch of googling and I find out that Oh, wait, quick, by the way, uh, Zwift has added a whole new section of road that's got lots of rolling terrain, so with tons of shifting. But I think it's 11 miles long, just one way. It's pretty cool. Anyway, uh, somebody said, oh, somebody's already tried this. And yes, you can pair two remote shifters. And I went and looked, and it's Desfit, who does a really good channel. And he did the remote clicker, like what I've got, the little single clicker thing, the little puck. And you can pair it to uh, the, the game controller style shifters, right? You can pair both of those at the same time. So you can have the game control things on your drop bars, and then you could put this little puck shifter anywhere, like on your bike, on the top bar of your bike. If you have a road bike, that's another thing that's would be really cool, right? You would, if you had two of these little puck things, you could put one, you know, on your, on your right, uh, shifter hood, for example, brake hood, and then one on your top bar, right? But from my experience working with software and hardware, I said, that doesn't prove that you can connect two click shifters. That proves that you can connect a click shifter and the play game controller. So I don't trust that answer yet, but I just kept running across, well, it should work. It should work from people that do not work for Zwift, by the way. And in my experience and the work that I do for my day job is whenever somebody says should in a meeting about a project, That's where the problem is going to happen, right? Everything else is all figured out. It's when somebody says should, well, it should work. This software should work with this other software. Uh, That person, this store should be open at this time, right? That's the things that you write down. Anytime you hear that, it's my pro tip of the show for just regular life. Anytime somebody says should in a meeting about a project, write that down and then go double check that thing because that is your weakest link and where things could possibly fail because that's the thing that's not verified yet. Okay. Okay. So I messaged Zwift, I sent him an email to customer support and I said, hey, can I get a second clicker? And they said, sure, send us the the invoice number and we'll send you a replacement. And it was just weird, the kind of the way they said it. And I'm like, no, I just wanna see like, where on your website can I just order the little remote clicker thing? It doesn't exist, right? You have to, you can't just order these. You have to have bought the entire trainer. And then they might give you one. And I'm like, but but I want one and I have money. So take my money and give me a shifter. And it actually makes people enjoy your product a little bit better. So I was a little confused what's going on here and getting more suspicious. And my friend, Gary, who my friend, the same guy that I went over to his cold duck tank with, happened to have the same trainer with a single click shifter as well. And I told him I wanted to come over and test out Can we take my click shifter and his click shifter and pair them both at the same time to Zwift? And he's got a whole Zwift set up so that we have two shifters on the bike so that we have two shifters on his tri bike like you would want. And also I'll jump in the uh, dunk tank. He finally got me. I'll come over and go do this stupid thing, (laughs) freeze my ass off in the name of science and discovery. And he said, yeah, come on over. So I get over there and he goes, what do you want to do first? Do you want to do the clicker thing or and, or do you want to get in the dunk tank? And I go, well, we both decided together. We're going to try to do the click thing and see. We turn on Zwift. We turn, it gets into pairing mode. And then it shows both clicks, right? It shows both click remote puck things. They have different little ID numbers. But when you select one, the other one gets grayed out. We were like, Oh, because at first we were like, oh, cool. It sees both of them. Okay. Yeah, okay. Now let's select both of them. Uh-uh. No. You select one. It grays out the other one. We're like, what? It'll only allow one. And then we selected the other one and it grayed out the first one. And we're like, oh, man. Dang it. We sat there. We just stared at the bike. And we're like, and then <laughs> we were like, how, how could this happen? How could they software code this thing? And it's just, I think it's just something they haven't thought of. And it slipped through the cracks. So what I've done is in the same places that i found where people were talking about the Zwift Hub uh, with the little puck click remote and where I'd asked, I went back and posted, hey, update, because it seems like I'm the first person on the internet that's done this. I actually tested it and no, it does not. You cannot pair two of these at the same time. And I know that it's kind of a, We're kind of a niche small market, but we're kind of not because my friend and I were talking about Zwift is full of cyclists, you know, roadies, but the people that actually train big volume are triathletes on this thing that really use it for, for tons of training, you know, cyclists are like recreational 80%, let's say they're just cyclists, you know, but people that are in the triathlon and use TT bikes, they're serious about not cycling so much. They're serious about, they're on Zwift to train So they're kind of your hardcore users is the point I'm getting to where people with the drop bars and that could use the Zwift play remote are kind of more, more of them are just recreational users, but your triathletes are hardcore and they're going to want this thing to have two shift spots on their tri bike. Okay. So anyway, I've gone on too long about this. I posted that, Hey, Zwift, can you Can you update your software so that it'll allow two clickers? I don't know if there's some sort of hardware limitation. I don't think there should be, but you just don't know sometimes unless you work for the company, you know, the back end of things. And try to not over-explain, so I'm not too annoying. You know, as a triathlete, you want two shift points on your bike. These are little clickers. They're cheap. People will pay money for them. You should sell them on your website as add-on little buttons, just like SRAM does with their add-on little blip shifters, right? And we've got money to spend. We want to give you our money. You've got the product. Put it up there for sale and make some money. So I would really appreciate it if the listeners of this show could also comment and send Zwift uh, support. It's easy to do. It's like support at Zwift.com. A message saying, hey, I got a tri bike. I got TT bars. I want to buy your hub, but I'm not buying it uh, until I can buy multiple clickers because I don't want to have just one shift point on my on my um on my bike on my tri bike or you could say I've already bought it and hey what's this going on I want a second clicker no not to replace the first one I want it to add to the first one so can you please change your software so that it'll allow two clickers all right that's that now I'm going to have to decide if we're going to do the Kona Pro Women's Race Review or the Dunk Tank Audio I guess it doesn't really matter because you can move around in the show and pick which one you want. I guess what we'll do is take a break from me talking about myself and my drama here a little bit. And let's do the women's pro race review. Talk about these fantastic athletes doing something amazing in this amazing race. Here we go. But before we get too far along, I just wanted to mention that I do track-on coaching. I do individual sport coaching. Hit me up at texafornia at gmail.com. And put coaching in the subject line of the email or somewhere in the email. And then also, we are always looking for sponsors of the show. It takes a lot of time and money to put together a podcast. And we have thousands of listeners and also followers on Instagram, Twitter. So if you want to get your product or your event on the show, let me know. Again, send an email to texafornia at gmail.com. And in that one, you could just put sponsorship, sponsor, or news. Or event in the subject line and I'll catch it okay let's talk about the all women's pro and age grouper world championship in Kona Hawaii and this is just turning the Ironman world upside down they did the all pro men's race and age grouper race for men in Nice France a few weeks ago and it went over really well people really liked it and They're doing the all pro females in Kona. And the downside is that you've got power couples, you know, that and families that have somebody in each gender at the different races. And they got to travel all the way across the world for these different things. I guess that's sort of rare or rare enough where they're willing to do that. But the upside is, is you get full blown coverage on completely different weekends of the different races and the women's pro race has always been complaining about two different things, interference from the men. So the pro men usually go off, pro women go off, you know, like say five minutes apart. Kind of depends on the race, five, 10 minutes apart. And then five, 10 minutes later, everybody else goes. And the age grouper men is full of really top notch athletes. And a lot of them are former pros. People that should be pros, (laughs) but it's the best in the world in their age group, right? And they'll start catching up with the pro women and getting mixed up in the race. And it's not intentional, but there's drafting rules where you can't be behind people. If somebody passes you, you got to fall back and such. And it ends up just screwing up the women's race. And then the other thing is forever the big complaint about not allowing equal numbers of pro women in the race as pro men and they always say well there's just not enough there's just not enough space on the pier to have you know the 50 pro men and 50 pro women and there's their rationale is well there's fewer pro pro women in general which i'm not actually sure is is true anymore but Because there's fewer pro women, then they're going to say like 30 pro women. And they're like, we thought this whole sport was about equality. It's the same distance for everybody. Have the same number of pros. And (laughs) some women that I talk to are like, why not have 30 pro men and 50 pro women? You know, why are the women the one that get the short end of the stick? But I went back and made a count because Ironman didn't talk about this, that they were uh, uh, changing the number of pro women allowed on the on the um, on the pier because I think they want to kind of downplay the history of this problem. But I went back myself and looked, and there was 53 pro women in this race, and then just a huge number of age group of women, and the race was all about them. And I do not understand where people say that they don't want to watch, like, the women racing as much as they want to watch the men. the women's racing is freaking awesome, and if anything is inspiring, it's women getting out there and doing the same distance as the guys, almost the same speeds, sometimes faster, faster than a majority of men. And then when you start to dig into the stories of these women, a lot of them weren't served the ability to be an athlete, you know, on their, on a silver platter where that's all they have to do. They have to, a lot of times, support a family. They have a career. So the, the, the number of pro cyclists and pro runners and and women that also have PhDs is insane. They're some of the smartest people with their own careers, and they're doing this, a lot of them, on the side and running their own lives. It's so inspirational. For example, there's two women that have won the world championship that are moms. That's so great. But anyway, let's talk about the race. Of course, Lucy Charles took off and won the swim in something around 50 minutes. Oh, and conditions, by the way, were really great. That helps you. Uh, that helps break the record time, which they did. So Lucy almost broke the record swim time, missed it by a minute, which actually I think she owns anyway. And one fascinating thing about Lucy is if you look at her body type, swimmers, the best swimmers in the world have really wide shoulders. And it's something about the geometry of the body and getting those arms out there on the side so they can act more like rotating paddle wheels. (laughs) And if you look at Lucy's body type, she has crazy wide shoulders and then her body is kind of like flat and slender. And so what she's able to do is just slice through the water with these windmill arms on the side. And it's a lot like Michael Phelps being what, like six foot six or six five, whatever he is, and having giant hands You can a lot of times look at somebody's body type like in basketball and be like, "Okay, they're going to be a they're going to be a pro. They're going to be some of the best in the world. And so it's very. And also Lucy comes from a world championship, I think, Olympic uh, swimming background. So she came out of the water and then on the bike, she took the lead. And I think she had a lead of a couple minutes or so on the bike. And Lucy's body type is very uh, thin and slender, which helps on the If you're tall enough and you have shoulders like her, it's not a problem on the swim. It definitely helps you on the run because you hardly have any weight to carry along with you. But on the bike, it's a bit of a problem. You'll notice that a lot of the powerhouse bikers, as long as the course is level enough and not like climbing mountains, are big dudes. Big guys actually generate so much power and then it's a volume-to-surface area kind of thing. The... They don't have as much drag as you as you think you would have so lucy being kind of um thin and and slender like facing into the wind that's a bit of a problem so in the past she's kind of messed around with some that specialized bike that she had and some weird bikes trying to make some sort of advantage for her to work on the bike and be aero efficient in the bike and she had, She's had stuff like fall off the back of her bike with these weird bikes, and especially the specialized one. And then um, a couple of years ago, she went with Cube, which is a European brand. I think that might be German. And it is a straight-up conservative-styled for a triathlon bike. Just no frills, simple design, clean speed weapon. And after having lost bottles before in races... I'm sure she's got those locked down with, like, those gorilla grip cages. Somebody else in the race lost a fuel bottle or both bottles and got a um, a penalty, actually, for the bottles coming off the bag. I think Lucy has been through that, doesn't want that to happen again. And by the way, the sweetest part of the story is Lucy has been second place four times and never won. And one great way to predict who's the winner is look who's got issues and who's pissed off. And who's been burned and angry about it? They're going to put in the extra training and then put in the extra effort and the extra power on race day to come out ahead. And I bet also knowing that the drag on Lucy on the bike was going to be her number one opponent. So I'm supposing, I don't know this, I'm supposing they spent a ton of time in the wind tunnel to figure out the most aero position, the most aero equipment, the m- most aero fabric. Uh, the only weird thing I saw on her bike is uh, it's something that a lot of people are doing: is the um, the forearm pads, you know, to, under your elbows, is more of like a tray, and they're kind of cheating the rules a little bit to do that, but it's within the rules, so it's not really cheating. And a lot of people are doing it, but it's like a kind of like a tray to lay your arms in, and somehow that's okay, and that creates kind of like a fairing effect. But everything else on her bike looked pretty typical you know, bottles behind the seat, bottle between the arms. And she finished the bike. I did not look to see what her average miles per hour was, but it was four hours and something, which is hauling ass. And then she started the run. And then I think she averaged something around a 630 miles. She did not run the fastest run. Anne Haug, Haug, Annie Haug, I forgot how to say her name. She's German or Swiss, um, ran just a tad bit faster and was running her down, but did not have enough distance to actually do it and i think lucy was absolutely running for her life to win this race this is finally the time where she was going to be able to pull it off and she is the first person ever i think definitely the first female to win the iron man world championships from tape to tape which means she won the swim she led from the swim and then never got caught and led the entire way usually Somebody like catches up after being passed on the bike. They catch up on the run, you know, they play like tactics and, and conserve here and conserve there. No, she was the best on the day at everything in general. Somebody ran faster than her, but she was already ahead of her, you know, by the bike. I'm sure somebody biked faster than her, but Lucy was already ahead of her so much on the swim that it all worked out. And wow. The other thing was. There was no showing the men and then going back and trying to look at what some of the women were doing. It was the entire women's race from end to end. And also, they did something right. They showed it on YouTube, which I have learned is by far the best platform to cover a race. When uh, Lifetime is doing the Gravel Worlds, the Gravel Series uh, they're showing it on Instagram, which is just terrible. a terrible platform. You get these short little bits. It's hard to keep up. It's hard to know what's going on. Just put it on YouTube and then everybody has that. Everybody can you know scroll back, forward, whatever. There's comments, there's there's all kinds of great stuff. So just do it on YouTube. And they did that right. So congratulations to Lucy Charles finally winning finally winning. And good job on Iron Man for an absolutely spectacular uh, race coverage, getting enough women on on the race course like they've always deserved. It was such an awesome thing to watch. Uh, it got more women uh, to the world championship level, age group-wise, too. And next year, they're going to flip, and the women are going to be in Nice, and the men are going to be in Kona. And I think it kind of makes it interesting. You, know, you go back and forth. Uh, let's see. The other interesting women racers, there's so many of them, but just off the top of my head, Daniela Reef got like, what place did she get? Third, fourth or fifth or sixth? Uh, she could always win it. And then that, oh, she said that might be her last Kona. She might do world championships in Nice, I think. There was kind of this hint. And then, oh, the women being interviewed afterwards were so happy that there wasn't any men interference. They had a nice, clean race. And Also, one of my favorites, Jocelyn McCauley, who is from College Station, Texas, who grew up swimming in the same pool that I just swam in this morning, and a mom of two. Does she have three kids now? She got 10th place, and she's super excited about it. At times, she was in fourth, fifth, sixth. She's a a really strong front end of the race biker and a decent swimmer. So she gets up in the mix there at the beginning of the race, and then it seems like uh, towards the end of the bike, people start, you know, outperforming her a little bit and then on the run uh she's an amazing runner i went for a run with her one time in town and the uh but these other people are just like freaking insane so uh to get 10th place though i think the top 10 get automatic qualification for next year and also a paycheck so she's posting on social media about how happy and excited she was to get 10th and that's a really big deal people are a lot of times racing for 10th (laughs) when you're 11th people are screaming at you get fucking get get faster go 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 you got to get 10th you got to pass that person you got to pass that person to get 10th because that's the breaking point with a whole lot of uh your life changes if you get 10th instead of 11th okay i'll probably think of some more things about that race while i talk about the other huge race which was the uci gravel world championships held in northern italy and I forgot the name of the town. But Gravel Worlds last year for UCI was considered kind of a joke. It was not technical enough. It was full of roadies. A lot of our gravel people over here in the United States who are the best in the world decided not to go because it wasn't really a real race. To them, same kind of standards that we have in the United States. And then UCI doubled down this past year and put out a whole bunch of UCI races across the United States to try to get more people to go. Kai and I went, and Emily went too, but Kai and I raced the UCI race in Arkansas near Bentonville. And that race was legit. And you could tell there was a change where people were wanting to win these races, and the pros were showing up to get these qualifications to go to Gravel Worlds. And our best in the world is Keegan, Keegan Swenson, and he's from Utah. And he is by far and above and beyond the best gravel racer in the world. And he's on caliber with the top European pros. But there's a downside to going over there to go do the UCI race is if you're a UCI racer at all, you get points. And the number of points you get over the year is what place you get in call up. So the people with the most points get the front row. And with I don't know how many people are in this race, uh, two, three, four hundred people. Well, in American gravel cycling, Leadville, I'm trying to think of some of the other huge races, Schwalmigan, Unbound, (laughs) they aren't UCI races. And in America, we really don't want them to be UCI races. So you don't get any UCI points. So the best gravel racer in the world, widely acknowledged the best in the world, had like a race plate number of 239 or something. So he was way in the back. And when you start off these races, if you do any kind of off road like mountain biking, for example, races and a little bit gravels like this a lot, too, is it'll narrow down to a single track trail at some point or like there'll be a hairpin turn, even if it's a wide road. And this course was narrow. It was really technical this year. UCI learned from last year and they made a very hard course, but it is European and it's uh, narrow roads, narrow turns, lots of pinch points. And European cyclists are very familiar and custom and accustomed to this, and they doesn't does not freak them out whatsoever and compared to the United states um you know where things are like more wide open because this is a country that was built pretty much after the car. Keegan had to start way in the back and then work his way up to the front and Then, when he got up to the very, very very front in an interview, he said that one of the problems was. It was roadie mentality the the front end of this race was like all of these UCI uh, world Tour roadies with full support from their world Tour teams, you know, like the team vans, team mechanics, all the team gear and all this stuff. And for example, the winners of the men and women's race have never done a gravel race before. They were actually world Tour roadies. <laughs> There's something wrong whenever. The best person at the race is somebody who's never raced that kind of event before. And Keegan said that a group of three apparently had gone off the front by a couple minutes. And Keegan and Vanderveer, who's a world tour, just retired like last year. And a couple other guys uh, were, you know, trying to catch them. And the talk amongst the group was not Keegan, but the rest of the group was, Oh, they're too far ahead. We can't catch them. You know, let's just let's just ride this out where Keegan said that in American gravel, like in real gravel racing, you're like it doesn't matter that if people are off the front, they can wreck. Right. This is gravel. And those people could crash. They could wipe out. So you do not give up until the very end, which is a different culture instead of playing you know, cat and mouse for positions and stuff, which is very typical and works in European road racing. And so he couldn't get anybody to work with him and then also he had a crash a lot of people don't know that he had a small crash and then had to catch back up with the group and that burned some calories so he got out sprinted for fourth by Vandeveer and got fifth but if things had gone better he would have been in that lead pack but also you got to think about this the numbers that the winner put no second place they actually have the power numbers and it was three hundred and eighty watts for four and a half hours or something like that. It's absolutely insane. So that was an amazing race. I think they did the yeah, they did the women's race on Saturday and the men's race on Sunday. And the big problem that arose from this race is somehow they forgot to do live video coverage of the women's race on Saturday. They just, you know, didn't it just didn't happen this year. And the women pros were pissed. And the everybody was pissed off about it, especially in the United States. And in an interview with some of the women, they were like, they, it was so confusing. Like the way the, the culture is over there. They're like, yeah, well, what do you expect, you know? And it's like, no, this is not right. The way that pros make a living is through exposure and results and seeing them on TV. There's a reason they have logos all over their kit because they should be on TV and you should be able to see that. And, you know, oh, they forgot to do the women's the to make video coverage of the women's race. Right. Well, they didn't forget to do coverage of the men's race. So it's obviously a little bit of a discrimination and a choice situation of not valuing the women's race as much as the men. And what we learned from Hawaii and Kona Ironman was people definitely want to watch the women's race and it can be done correctly. So do it right next year. And when the men's race was on live was it on youtube i think it might be on youtube as well they started off the first five to ten minutes of that race with clips from the women's race from yesterday because they had video footage they just didn't didn't show it live and they went on and on about how sorry they were that they had made a big mistake and they weren't going to do it again and they promised there was going to be coverage next year it was oh it was so great people just laid into them on social media about you know they would report all oh, the women's are the women this woman won or like this woman had the breakaway or whatever and people immediately on social media because there's the replies back would say how would we know you know it would, sure would be great to see this but because you don't have live coverage how are we supposed to follow this race just with lap split times I mean that's ridiculous in this day and age But back, okay, (laughs) to the good things about the race, the best American got fifth in a field where he had to start at the back and also a field littered with European pro roadies on European soil with European style uh, terrain and European, uh, you know, alleys and narrow turns and such, which just goes to show like how good American gravel actually is. It's very, very impressive. At first, a lot of people go, oh, fifth, man, that kind of sucks. He didn't win. Then it's like, wait. You know, when you start to think about it, you're like, dude, that is really, really impressive that he got fifth when they had pretty much everything working against him. So yeah, that is coverage of the two big events. It's a very exciting time in Ironman and other endurance sports racing. The reason I cover gravel so much is because with the gravel bike, you can throw on some aero bars and get in long training rides that are way safer than being out on the regular open road. Just try to make the geometry of your, of your gravel bike. You put a forward-facing seat post on it if you can. Put on some aero bars. Make it as close to uh, your tri bike as you possibly can. You can't get quite as low. You need some more stability. You need the elbow pads out a little bit because it's gravel and it's loose. But otherwise, you can spend a ton of time on gravel and really put in just a huge amount of volume of hours and such that's actually fun and entertaining and not feel like you're out there just training yourself to death. And uh, gravel races are typically very long, they can be, they're shorter ones, but they are the longest, biggest mass participation events that are a lot like Ironman, where everybody starts off all at the same time and the pros are at the front, just like a triathlon. And the culture is like really, really cool. So that's why we cover gravel so much. I got into doing gravel as a alternative uh, to road riding all the time out there with cars and being bored out of my mind. And it turned out to be like the best thing I've ever done with cycling as far as like mental health and enjoyment and adventure and also getting in the cycling that you need so that you have the volume that you need so that you can go out and do. I like to do like half Ironmans and up to Ironman distance. Because I think the training for that is just this big, slow volume, easy volume, uh, which is actually really good for you. So that's how we end up in the gravel world and why we will continue to cover gravel events and do gravel events because they are a really great side sport to doing just straight up triathlons. It's kind of like doing um, ultra running. We cover that a lot, too. It's a great way, ultra trail running. It's a great way to get in the volume and the mileage to be able to run a marathon off of a 112 mile bike ride. Is if you go out and train for (laughs) off road marathons and 50 Ks and 50 milers and such, even 100 milers, because trail running off road is a, um, it makes the time go by. You're less likely to get injured. You're in the shade. It's beautiful and the culture is absolutely really great. So it swaps right back over in the triathlon. It's really nice. All right, let's talk about the cold dunk tank. There's actually a more professional word for it. I can never remember what it is. (laughs) I'm gonna record while I'm driving here real quick so we can get this show put out. So my friend has one, he built it himself. You can spend like eight, 12 grand and buy one or you can go online and figure out how to build one yourself. Friend's pretty smart. He bought one of these freezers that's uh, a flat top, like storage freezer, and I guess that's what's keeping the water cold. He epoxy coated, I guess, and painted kind of a royal dark blue the inside of it with a yeah blue epoxy paint, and then bought an ozone generator, maybe made for this thing, and some. You know, clear hose tubing with an aerator stone like for a fish tank. Put that on the end of this thing and that ozone aerates the water to keep it clean because one of my first questions was, dude, I don't want to get in something that's dirty or whatever. How do you keep this thing clean? <laughs> and it's basically just a big fish tank. Is it because it's cold? And He's like, no, he ozone. He ozones it. He's like really into this and I'm like okay, I can work with this so far, and then also he's got a big temperature gauge on the wall that shows like the low and the high or something like that. He's got it all set up. He's been using it for about a year. He knows what he's doing. He loves it. Absolutely loves it. And I'm not sure he. I guess he does somewhere between eight and fifteen minutes at a t- at a time. And said that you know when he doesn't do it. I think daily, that he starts you know, craving it, he wants to do it because it can cause some sort of like, uh, it's got a very big therapeutic effect to people that enjoy this kind of thing, and uh, endorphin release, dopamine, uh, but uh, kind of a rejuvenating uh, buzz, tingle, something, I don't know, some kind of magic that's going on. And honestly, I tell you, all I felt was freaking cold, and it was intense, and uh, there's a little bit more to it, but um, let's go ahead and play the audio of me getting into this thing, us talking about it a little bit, and then after the audio, we'll talk a little bit more, and just remember this, as I'm getting in this thing, it's homemade, and as I've explained to people afterwards, it was not cold. It was just pure pain, but I've also done a lot of cold water stuff. We talk about that a little bit on the recording, and I'll talk about it some more in a bit. But I've done a ton of, of cold water stuff, so it wasn't quite that shocking to me. And with the Zen podcast and all the training I do, Zen style of like trying to be like in a relaxed flow state, because you actually perform a lot better in endurance sports, any kind of sports, and you can think more clearly, make better decisions. But also your your whole like breathing system, you know, muscular system, nervous system, everything works better if you're like really relaxed and loose. And that's what you're trying to do when you get into this thing. And so I was surprised at how well I handled it, but I just barely handled it well. I can tell you. And, oh uh, yeah, it was just pure pain And like we say, your body starts going into trying to hyperventilate, um, goes into shock, kind of, if you don't control your reaction. So you can hear us doing that. And then a little bit else of what's going on is people use it. Parking here, I got sensors going off. People use it uh, for training for focus and not panicking. Uh, My friend said something about that. His daughter had panic attacks. Uh, yeah, I think it's in the recording. She's a soccer player. And so they used it a few times to get her to learn how to control herself when she starts feeling panic. Because you get in this thing and you start panicking because your body thinks you're going to freeze to death. And you, you will, you know, if you're in it long enough. And so um, your body will start, like, say, for example, start trying to hyperventilate or like you hold, you hold your breath too long or um, you clinch up real tight and the whole Wim Hof. Method, you know, is it can teach you and you can actually survive it. Uh, if you just breathe deeply and it's something you have to train yourself how to do. So I was trying to do it and I did okay because I've done, um, I guess I'll go ahead and say it now. Uh, We talk about it in the show too, but I did the Alcatraz triathlon. That water's like 52 degrees. Um, that's like half an hour, 52 degrees We're in wetsuits and stuff, but water that's so cold that when you get any ice cream headache, I used to surf down, on the coast, uh, in December and the water was in the fifties and you're talking hour, two hours in 50 degree water, 55 degree water being rolled around and tumbled. Gary says, my friend says this thing about, do you, are you feel like you're drowning or anything? And I'm like, no, not at all. And he's like, okay, that's probably your cold water experience. Some people feel like they're, they're start freaking out, like they're going to drown in the thing. And then, um, One time I was open water swimming off the coast of La Jolla and the water was really cold and I wasn't wearing any kind of wetsuit or anything. I was just swimming in just swim trunks and I started getting too cold and my body started shutting down and I was still quite a few hundred yards from shore and it really, really scared me. Uh, Your body just starts turning into like molasses and it's like the scene in Titanic where Leo DiCaprio's character just kind of slides off the door because you just you just turn like, like into stone. Like it's really weird, like glue, you know? And what I did in that situation was I was like, I got to build up body heat. Um, so I just started trying to swim as hard as I could. And that got me to shore, but I was cold. I barely got to shore and I was cold for like a full day, I think. Like 24 hours, my core temperature dropped so low that I was having to wear heavy jackets and stuff. And yeah, when I lived in California, I'd surf in the morning, be really cold, I'd surf year round. And I would be cold until about lunchtime, I think, before my body started to warm up from being so cold and the, your body core temperature dropping down. So this isn't my first rodeo with cold water. And also we have a backyard pool and I get in it a lot uh, when it's cold. And, but just very briefly. So knowing all that, I still could totally appreciate that this water is cold and I did not know what the temperature was. I managed somehow to miss the temperature gauge on the, on the wall before I got in. And my friend did not point it out to me either. And then the water was 34 degrees. It's one degree Celsius. And that is by far the coldest water I've ever gotten into. I think any colder, you know, it's a block of ice. You can't get into it. And... If you don't, I already did. I looked to see how long I was in there, and it was four minutes. Four minutes at 34-degree water just trying to do my breathing and, and stay with it. Okay? So let's go ahead and listen to that, and we'll be right back. Well, we need to come up with a secret code name for you. For what? I don't know. You want your name on the podcast? I don't care. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'm over at Gary's house, and he has a homemade cool. water... What is it called? Cold, pl- Cold plunge. Yeah. Cold plunge? Well, it's a...
0: Yes, it's a... Yeah, it's a 16 cubic foot Amana freezer that I sealed. Um, we run ozone to, uh, to clean it. There's filters on the inside.
1: Mm-hmm. Right now, it's running at 34.3 degrees. Right, because I asked you, how do we know the water's clean? Well... And you said that you run ozone. I run too.
0: ozone every night
1: at 11.30. Uh-huh. Um, the lighting's kind of sucks here, but you can see the bottom. Okay, yeah, and so... We're doing the thing like Lionel Sanders did mm-hmm. without the talent. And I'm going to try to get in this. How deep? How do I do okay, I'm afraid so to touch I don't want to touch really, it with my gonna, hands. Is, it. You're going
0: to go in this way. Uh-huh. You're going to go leg in, leg in, stand, sit down. Get your feet up here. If you want all the way up. To, it's real mm-hmm. important when you're cold plunging to get exposure to the back of your neck. Okay. So the brown fat that we most of us oh, yeah, have it is on start, the back of your neck. The back of your yeah. neck. So I just read that the other day. Brown fat. Yeah. So you want to we'll try to get all the way up to your neck. Okay. One, because we want to activate that vagus nerve right there. Mm-hmm. But one thing we got to remember when we get in here, in through the nose, out through the mouth. We're not panicking. We're breathing. We've got to remember to breathe. Because yeah. your fight or flight mechanism will kick in mm-hmm. and say, oh, no, I don't need to be in here. Okay. So you're – You know they said – Breathe
1: your way through it. If those people on the Titanic just practiced the Wim Hof method,
0: yeah, they would have been, been healthier
1: <laughs> instead they, of drowning. Well, they would have been healthier, and then they would have drowned. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, so, I told Emily I was coming over here, and she goes, no, do not so do let, it.
0: So let's remember one really important thing. Okay. The, the real so te- All the testing that's done out there says 11, 11 minutes per week. Anything more than three-minute sessions – doesn't have any tr- tr- extra physical benefits, mm-hmm. but that's where your mental training comes in. Because okay. when you're in your third, fourth, fifth minute, mm-hmm. the, the, bond, the mind is trying to tell you. So you remember, you have three major focus points of your body mm-hmm. your underneath, your, your cheeks, okay. your hands, and the bottom of your feet. Okay. A lot of people who try this keep their hands out.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Me, everything goes in.
1: Okay. So, okay. All right. Now, I thought I had more questions, but I just... I mean, it.
0: I will kill it. We're going to kill it right now. What do you mean kill it? What I is kill, kill power it?
1: To it? Oh, so I don't I I accidentally do, shock do myself? I do get
0: into it. That there is a Minor. minimal okay. potential risk that the electricity could... So we we, we kill
1: it. Okay. All right. <laughs> Yeah,
0: so you're gonna go in. You're gonna you're okay. basically just gonna go foot to the bottom. So there's a filter right there. Yeah. Okay. Right? And there's a over there. So you, you won't even see it. You'll go foot in. Bring your other foot in. or tall legs. So it's a lot easier for us. And then just sit down.
1: Okay. And the reason the water's so low because the water's gonna come up.
0: Who you're? Yeah. Just think about. Okay. How much water you're displacing? All
1: right. I trust you.
0: Breathe. Also, I
1: haven't touched the water. I was about to touch the water with no, my hand. just get in. And I figured just I get just going to get in. Gonna get no, you're not. You got you to. Okay.
0: You you're 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 going to psych yourself out. Okay. This is mind over matter. I'm going to turn the fan on because uh, believe in Texas. And um, last thing you be worried about is
1: mosquitoes. Yeah, I'm starting to get bitten a little bit. Yeah? Even though it's October. Okay. So wait again. Step in. Step in. But what's the breathing thing? What do I do?
0: Into the nose, nose, out to the mouth. mouth. Okay. If you were wearing a heart rate monitor, what we would see is we would see an initial spike. We're looking oh. at, we're looking, yeah. So turn that on. I'm going to record this on a, as a workout.
1: Yeah, I'll just do.
0: Well, I have. There's a. There's actually a, a cold plunge actually, ha, or some has a setting for Garmin, so that's how I record mine. But you can record it as this open water swim, and it'll start on your heart rate. And you'll see that shock value, and then you'll be able to note, to note after the couple minutes, especially on the time mm-hmm. how long you're in there. So like I listen to podcasts
1: on the day. No, you're a very smart guy.
0: Motivational stuff.
1: I have no heartbeat on this one. Okay, we're going to switch it. I'm, I'm not delaying, I
0: promise. Just make it a
1: run. Yeah, I'm going to switch it to... Okay, get out. Resume, save, discard. Yes. Let me switch over to a run. Come on, come on. This is a good test of the durability of a Garmin Phoenix. There's my heart rate. Okay, Come on, heart rate. I don't have a heart rate yet. I have no heart rate. There it goes. Okay, 68. 71. That's not bad. For, yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Well, for the anxiety. anxiety. Oh, it's got auto-pause. And it's not going to record. Oh, because you're not moving. Because I'm not moving. That's so stupid. Come on! uh run wait
0: auto pause i'll I'll just show you my one of my profiles there's a there's actually an app now someone wrote an app for garmin for cold plunging really yeah
1: okay oh how long do i have to stay in for
0: you tell me you'll tell me when you get in there when you need to get out
1: okay okay so okay so can i am i gonna be able to hold the microphone or am i gonna sure is it too much Okay. I'm I'll putting hold this. Hold this while you get in. Okay. I'm putting my left foot in. It's really cold.
0: Yeah. You're, th- you're overthinking it. Right okay. foot in. <laughs> I promise you. And slide forward and just sit down.
1: I can't ease in slowly. Well, oh,
0: it's it up to you. I mean, I'm just telling you that it's the theory is the larger, harder the longer you make this process, the more your brain is trying to tell you not to do it. And so my feet would go up on that platform in front of you. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Relax. Okay. Now go ahead and sit all the way to the bottom. Maximum benefit, breathe. Now you're not breathing. There you go. Now let's put our hands in. There you go, perfect. Are any parts of your body shivering yet? Okay, some some of us shiver, some of us don't. Um, you know, there is a little bit of the of the um, uh, human deal where he talks about saying until he starts to shiver. I think that's a little overkill, um, but again, everybody's different. You know, you think you know, there is thin guys that are great at polar polar swimming, and there is there is heavy guys that. You know, you would think a bigger guy like myself would be able to tolerate a lot more, but it still has to do that, va- that shock system. Have you, have you experienced a rush of euphoria yet? A what to my what? I need rush of euphoria. Clarity. No. Okay.
1: Pain in my forearms and hands.
0: Okay. So your hands, you can either bring them out now to acclimate a little bit. When you move them now, what happens is that they'll get colder. So in a, in a situation like this, move your feet back and forth. Okay, rock your body a little bit. You're very tense, relax. I know that's easy to say to someone who's not in the water, but we didn't start a timer. Yeah, and I forgot
1: just to restart my watch, but my heart rate 76. Yeah. So you settled you've you calm.
0: Remember to breathe. Out through the mouth. You let your shoulders go back. There you go. So, see, there's a, there's a tension associated with the activity that comes along with the brain telling you I shouldn't be doing this. Some people, when they get out, will have a huge uh, uh, flushing. Uh, like my girlfriend uh, Sarah's her her son Zane, he does it. He I mean he he goes completely red. But he is, he's super low on body fat. But I mean, what's the cold, what's the worst part about you? If you're out riding on a cold day, what's the, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? Your hands get cold? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, those, that's, those are the sensitives. You feel the bottom of your feet? Yeah. Yeah. So you going to put your hands back in? <laughs> <I> don't <laughs> you don't have to, to. <laughs> that's fine. No, because that's the, that's, that's, that's the, that's where that tingling and that pain starts.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to see. If I can get to the point where I'm relaxing, then I am.
0: Then you move around. So what happens is right now your body has created a thermal layer. Yeah, I know. And it's warmed I don't up. I want
1: it right now. <laughs> I know because you get in cold water and you stay still, it'll actually, when you move, it gets colder. Right. Okay, I think I'm going to get out.
0: Okay. So, the easiest thing to do, hands out. Maybe
1: let's do that again.
0: <sighs> Arms up on the sides. Wait, look. look him. Do people have trouble getting out? No. Now just shift yourself back. There you go. Rise okay. yourself back up. I think I'm going to be okay.
1: <sighs> well, you're, yeah, you're going to be okay. <laughs> you never know, dude. Well, I mean... <laughs> You worry, just, I, I worry while well, like, well, I'm in it, like am I going to be able to get out, you know, because I haven't done it before. Like you get so cold, you know.
0: I think it's interesting. So mine runs, I my, said my peak is 34 degrees and sometimes it drops lower. So I'll do 34 to 37 and that's where mine stays. And I promise you 37 degrees is way easier than 34. It gets progressive. It is, it is insane how it's easier 37 degrees is
1: mentally okay. than 34. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Okay, so I'm holding my, I was leaning against, <laughs> holding myself up with one arm. Also, you know, with all the crazy crap we do, like I know how to, like, pamper myself into pain. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like if you're gonna put out massive watts, so your legs are like burning to death on the bike, you make sure everything else is comfortable, you know, so okay. you can focus on that. So like I know how to. That okay. So what I'm doing right now is I'm bent over, I'm I'm out of the tub, See,
0: well, I get <laughs> but out. I'm resting with my. I immediately come up and lean
1: yeah. back into it. You're it doing kind of a ar- Gary just showed like he arches back, kind of like the sun, the sun warrior pose, kind yeah. of thing, and then I'm still hunched over with my one hand on my knees to try to come back to this world here a little bit. Okay. It was weird. Like, I didn't – it was more pain than cold. Yeah. You know? Like, the sensation was just pain, I guess.
0: Well, because it's nerve endings. Yeah. So the one thing that you're doing, you're teaching your body, especially on how to acclimate Mm -hmm. to cold – so people that that regularly cold plunge have a greater aptitude when they when they do go out into cold. Mm-hmm. It's no different than like sauna People that sauna work yeah. are so much easier their bo- regardless of their body composition they're so much more equipped to handle higher temperatures. Yeah. same thing with cold. It should translate better into increased neurosynapsis in because you like in your hands, your face now I'm not a head dipper. Mm-hmm. A lot of guys are they gung ho, they're head dippers. That shock to the
1: face—that's yeah. a whole other level of yeah. of fight or flight. Wow. Okay, so what what I forgot to tell you is you know well you know I have a backyard pool and it's pretty cold right now. So really, so like I have a lot of people that won't get in it. Therapy and
0: therapy pools, like if you go to A and M, the major sports, they run their therapy therapy pools around fifty degrees. Yeah. So most of the winter time, and and again, there's there's a, there's a lot of studies out there. A lot of studies will tell you that the guys that are the the cold plungers, punchers, mm-hmm. like the the hardcore guys, the guys that make their own, mm-hmm. all those are the, those are the guys that are thirty that are one degree C, zero degree C, looking for ice. <laughs> you don't want because the mine's frozen. Put it down to
1: thirty and put some salt in it because
0: it's an, it's an ego thing. <laughs> yeah, it really. I mean, I hate to say it, but it turns into a, a mental contest. Yeah, is. But the, a, lot of, a lot of the data will say, listen, that, that 45 to 55 degrees is the sweet spot, and you can stay in there for like 20 to 30 minutes. It's true. And yeah. Huberman did a bunch of research on yeah. the amount of uh, neuro, that's it, norepinephrine yeah. and noradrenaline that's released, and those guys see huge benefits. If you, three minutes, five minutes, and you're out, I do, I do five minutes, six uh, minutes every day. So with
1: the weather change, it's gotten cooler, especially at night, so my pool's gotten cooler in the backyard, and I'll get in up to my waist. You know, to kind of therapy my legs a little bit from the run or the bike. And then, but it's like, it's probably like 55, 60 degrees. Mm -hmm. So it's cold-ish. And I think, and then what I'll do is like, I'll dunk under real quick to rinse the sweat off. Yeah.
0: Because it still provides that shock. But
1: like right now, I don't see under, but I think that's why that helped me not be afraid. It didn't feel cold because I'm kind of used to cold, but it definitely hurt. Like
0: The thing, the hardest part for me is always... But it
1: was cold from the chest up.
0: It's always once you just, it's just get in. That's why I say don't, yeah. da- don't dilly-dally. Just get in and yeah. go for it. Because yeah. once you get under, it's yeah. really just the sensation. Because your body says, I have to shut all that information down. Because if, if it said, oh, I'm this cold, mm-hmm. you would be... To me, you'd be bombarding the brain.
1: Yeah, and I could totally see because to stay in, you were telling me you know to breathe in through your nose and relax, which is a good calming uh, process to know. Well, and, and remember, I could see how doing this. And remember,
0: breathing in your nose is a vasodilator. Vascul- yeah, so that's that whole same thing. So I'm now. starting to get
1: feeling back in the surface of yeah. my arms. Oh, that's so weird. And you, and you so okay? You, you, might, you might. I thought I was warmed you might up again.
0: Trouble to sleep tonight. Yeah,
1: but I no, my body's still warming up in different places.
0: To be fair, sometimes mm-hmm. I'll do it and then 20 minutes later I go to sleep.
1: And we don't know how long I was in. How long? Like a minute or two? Right.
0: No, well, you probably good. Two. I'm probably at three minutes. Okay,
1: and then. Oh, we can look back at the recording and go, I can figure yeah. out how long I was in. Okay. So then, um, but yeah, I could see how like practice, cause you really need to practice that calm breathing to stay in there.
0: Yeah.
1: It's, and so I could see that. Yeah. Now, like if I get really stressed out, I know, like if I had a tub and like did it all the time, like you do, I would know, like breathe in through your nose. So like, out this through is a out.
0: weird, weird note. I have one of my daughters is an elite soccer player struggles a little bit with anxiety. Mm-hmm. In her work in the in there she's actually taught herself mm-hmm. to move away from that fight or flight and pants so she no longer has panic attacks, yeah she hates the cold plunge and won't do it anymore, mm-hmm. yeah. but we did some work originally it actually taught her how to get over because she started having it's the same exact result of a panic attack the fight or flight in calming
1: herself down because the worst thing come and say is, is just calm down yeah because like I couldn't really talk when I got first got in because I was trying to yeah. Cause trying to preserve my life, right? And so, like, I wasn't able to say that, um, yeah, you feel like there's a point when you get in far enough where, like, you have, like, little fears start popping in your head. Like, I was like, like, I asked, like, how am I going to get out of this thing? Like, mm-hmm. is it hard to get out? <laughs> and then, yeah, just, like, what if this, I didn't have too many, like, scary thoughts, but it was um, more like,
0: well, and it was I so, want to be able to, when also, I
1: decide to get out, I want to be able to get out. I
0: also remember you are... A very adept aqua person. Your mm. skill level and your experience in in, in water mm. is completely different than a lot of other people. So even a small thing like that, people have that aren't experienced in water like like you are. Yeah. Like it's go think of you would not never think that you were going to drown, right?
1: Yeah, right. Yeah. But you also but thinking, I, I could imagine somebody can't move. Yeah, somebody what if, might. What think if that. I get stuck in here? Yeah, I'm going to die. That never crossed my mind. Yeah, so I've been surfing. Ask me
0: how you're going to get out.
1: I've been surfing in heavy surf in water that's 50 degrees. Yeah. Which is effing cold, mm-hmm. and so like, well, and cool. then I've been open water swimming one time and almost started to drown think because of, of being too cold.
0: You've done. Think about when well, you swim across Tahoe. Tahoe had
1: been in the low sixty. 50s? No. no, it was yeah, it was it was fifty nine. Okay, well, no, oh, maybe sixty one.
0: That's still miserably cold.
1: Yeah, for thirteen hours, <laughs> 13 and a half, But who's counting? But uh, okay, this is cool, dude. So I mean,
0: all right. For me, it's
1: like I said. It's weird. My body, different parts of my body, are warming up and coming back online. So
0: you it's want, so you want to hear weird. Really weird. Yeah, my first cold plunge was September fourth of twenty twenty
1: two.
0: This is the same water.
1: I don't know to be grossed out or well, not. well, it's completely clear. I run a, yeah, because nothing can survive in there.
0: Well, because I run. A, I, run a, I run. Oh, the ozone. A, I run ozone yeah. for thirty minutes every night from eleven thirty to
1: twelve.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I add water because, of course, we lose some evaporative effect. Um, and I run a polishing filter that I change the filter every week and a half. Yeah.
1: Um, well adding water over time, it's kind of like adding engine oil yeah. to a leaky engine, but it'll um, eventually clean it. The out. only
0: time i ever had a problem with this, my, uh, ozone uh, timer went out mm-hmm. and yeah. I mean, if you, if I turned it off and we just left it the light there mm-hmm. in a week or two, they would, it would be, it would grow. Yeah, Cause yeah. just all the bacteria on your skin. Yeah. No matter how much you, how clean you are. Um, you know, yeah.
1: Okay. I could see how you could get addicted to this. This is pretty cool.
0: You know, it's really fascinating too because one of the things that I read a lot about was um, depression, yeah, and how um, that. So I get in about twenty seconds after I get in, I have a, I have a, I have like a clarity. Mm -hmm. I don't have a huge flushing when I get out, but I'll have a. There will be an instant, and that's to me probably my.
1: I wonder if it's like a runner's same runner's high Could dopamine. It still hurts like a mother bill, so i don't
0: really know i mean it's kind of like you're sitting in there and yeah you're moving, runner's high is like, caused by you a little start bit of moving pain around though. to create yeah. to get the barrier
1: you know i wasn't about to do that i do exactly what you were talking about yeah. i yeah. move your legs around yeah because i just moved my hands from where they were like up to the surface mm-hmm. of the water and they immediately got way colder and yeah your body builds an insulating layer uh-huh. of of heat around it in so, the water that's you, how a wetsuit works fall,
0: yeah Perfect yeah. example, yeah. right? You get,
1: yeah. you want water inside your wetsuit mm-hmm.
0: to create a thermal air. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, oh, see? my God. Now, you raise the temperature in there to 36 degrees.
1: So, we started out at
0: 34?
1: 34.3. Oh, my God. Okay, I'm going to take a picture of this. It, it, won't, it probably won't set. All right. So, that's the dunk tank cold water therapy experience, the full experience. <laughs> I left in all the audio of me shivering to death and like i said when i got out I actually felt pretty cool like feeling your systems come back online and do i recommend it i mean yeah sure as the experience to say that you've done it now i can say that i've been in 34 degree water i think it was four minutes when i looked at the audio time definitely do it in an environment with somebody that's really experienced and also make sure there's a very sufficient exit plan meaning you're gonna want Ways to get out of the water quickly if needed with help in case something happens. And also, I brought with me a beanie hat, a warm jacket, some towels. Yeah, so that I could put on a lot of layers as soon as I got out of the thing. When I used to go surfing in really cold water, you always bring that stuff with you so that you can uh, warm up as fast as you can. Because when your core body temperature drops, it takes a long time for that to come back up. All right, so we're almost at the end of the show. Just have a couple important things. One is that I actually own one of the Shimano cranks that got recalled and it's been in all the news. It is true. They did come apart when I had them. I took them off, sent them back and then it happened again. Kept those and just bought a SRAM crank set and I talk about it and I've got audio describing uh, the warranty. Well, I don't know if I described the warranty process. I took it to the Trek shop and then they um, replaced it for me. And it took a short amount of time, uh, you know, a few weeks ago. Who knows now? I mean, Shimano might be in some real financial trouble, trouble over this thing. But I just wanted to put in the audio, in the show with the audio of me talking about that. Because a lot of us just might be blowing it off that it, you know, those cranks from a while back. Who owns those things? Dude, I own a set. I own two of them. And they really did come apart. So i got this audio bit. We're going to end the show with that of how they kind of came apart and so forth. And then I also wanted to say what's possibly coming up on the next episode. You never wanna promise things because they might not happen. (laughs) But the new route on Zwift came out and it's really long and it's really flat-ish with some minor hills in it. It's wonderful for long distance bike training. So I'm gonna talk about that. I haven't ridden it yet, but I've watched somebody else ride it. You can just log into the game and watch other people. So I uh, became a bicycling perv and watched somebody else bike the thing. I don't know who it was. And it's pretty impressive. So we're going to talk about that. And then also, as of this recording right now, tomorrow, I will be going with Kai to Burnett, Texas, to pre-ride the Austin. Is it called the Austin Rattler? Yeah, I think it's called the Austin Rattler, even though it's nowhere near Austin. The Austin Rattler qualifier race for Leadville, the Leadville 100. The Leadville 100 mountain bike race, which starts at 10,000 feet and goes up to 12,400, and back down again, is 100 miles long. It's so popular that you actually have to qualify for it at a series of other races, and one of them is a place where Kai and even myself have raced a bunch, and he's got a real chance of qualifying for Leadville. It's a lot like Kona, Kona, Ironman uh, uh, tickets, qualifying spots where, you know, only the top few people in each category, each age category get a spot. And the thing is, last year, one of Kai's teammates from his Texas development racing team qualified, and they're the same speed, like Kyle beat him, he'll beat Kai, like they're the exact same speed. And he qualified time-wise, but he was actually too young <laughs> to go... So he had the he had the time that was needed to go, but you have to be 18 and he was like 17. So he couldn't qualify. And so there's a real chance that Kai might qualify for this. And that race is a week from tomorrow, but what we're doing is we're going tomorrow to pre-ride the course. And that race is 60 miles long and it's three loops of 20 miles, which is one of my favorite setups. I did three loops of or five loops, six loops of you know, 20 plus miles, whatever, to do the Rocky Raccoon 50 miler and 100 miler trail run race a bunch of times. So what's so cool about it is with a looping course, you can pace yourself so much better. You kind of go easy the first time, and then your second lap, you're a little bit more tired. And This should take like, I think it's five hours. You start getting a little bit more tired, but you know the course a little bit better. And so your second time through, you're a little bit faster, but it washes out, right? It evens out. And then your third time, you're even more tired, but you know the course even better and you're even more efficient. And hopefully you don't bonk. And the strategy is we take the winning time and then we figure out what that is per loop. And then we have Kai race the loop at that pace and see if he can do that pace. And we have all the recording equipment on him. We've got heart rate, power, speed, GPS. And we see how hard it is for him to do that race pace. For one loop, probably going to do two loops. I don't think we're going to do the full 60. We're going to do like 40. And this is mountain biking, and it is rough mountain biking. This ranch that it's on looks like Mars. It's so crazy, the terrain. So the next episode, we'll have audio of me going out there with him, pre-writing the course, talking about that, seeing what it's going to, what we think, you know, is going to happen on race day and all the preparation that we do for him. And then I'm not racing. I'm actually going to support him instead of racing. Kills me. I really want to (laughs) race, but it's more important I'm gonna I'm gonna get my ride in, you know, tomorrow, and then I'll just support next weekend. And it's uh, I love doing the long distance mountain biking stuff. I think it's so great. A five hour ride where you're nearly dying the entire time from every kind of crash possible is actually quite intense and makes the time fly by, and is really good for developing uh, power. Anyway, then hopefully we'll have the race day and a great race execution. Might get lucky enough to actually win a spot. And then if that happens and we're talking a year from now, we're going to go to Leadville, Colorado and have a Zen Tri podcast from there. But a lot of things have to go right for you to qualify, as you know, for a world championship or a world level event like this. But we've got fueling nailed. Hydration, you know, we got nailed, but hydration in Texas can go either way uh, with the temperature because it's so crazy here. And then it's pacing that we're going to try to figure out tomorrow. And also with the bigger hills, where to put down power, where to coast, where to expend energy, where to burn matches, where to conserve and try to just recover and be efficient. And again, mountain biking is really hard on your equipment. Lots of stuff can go wrong. He's got a top-end bike, a Trek Super Caliber, like pro team edition. The thing is super sweet. And he worked at a bike shop, so he... Pretty much knows how to fix anything on a bike, but sometimes, you know, flat tire, you just rip a sidewall, you know, there's no repairing it and they don't allow on course support just at the one, you know, end of the loop. So if something happens, he's going to have to fix it himself. But if you were looking for a recipe for somebody to qualify, this is kind of it. You know, he's a great racer. Somebody his speed that's verified that their (laughs) equivalents would have qualified, If he was the right age, Kai's already raced at that location six times, eight times. I don't know how many times we've done a training camp there. And now he's racing for Texas state, the past two collegiate mountain bike race events that he's been to, he's either gotten first or second at the college level at the longer cross country mountain bike races. And that's racing against everybody at Texas A&M, UT, Baylor, University of North Texas, and there's this one other school I can 't remember their name, but they have scholarship racers, and the last race he beat the four three or four time junior national champion of Honduras. <laughs> so if you were to put all your eggs into one basket and cross your fingers and try for something, this is the recipe for where it could happen, and so it 's going to make for some really great show content and If something happens and the race doesn't go well or the race goes really well, but then he still doesn't qualify, it'll still make for a really great show because then there's next year. They have the race every year and you can learn one year to the next. You know, it's like Hawaii. The champion almost never wins their first year. Like we were just talking about, it took Lucy four, five years of second place. In fact, that's an interesting statistic that a lot of people don't know is the number one identifier of who's going to win the race this year is who got second or third last year. I think people progressively work their way up, you know, 10th and 7th and 5th and 3rd, 2nd, and then they win Hawaii. But regardless, what we're going to record and put out there is the analytics and the strategy, planning and execution of a race that's four, five, six hours long. And And y'all can all see how it's done. Okay, so that's it. I'm gonna see you next episode and we'll leave you with the short bit I recorded about the Shimano cranks. All right, everybody stay safe out there. Work the uphills, cruise the downhills and keep the rubber side down out. Hey, I just wanted to jump in here and record something really quick. I had a couple things pop up while I was mixing the show down to make it into a podcast. One is the Shimano crank recall. Crank recall. I actually own one of those cranks. I owned two of them, actually. And one came on my 2015, I think it is, Trek Speed Concept. And I rode it for a while. Let's say a year, maybe two years. And I don't remember how that one started coming apart. But I remember it was pretty substantial suddenly where it really started to bend weird or something. And then I looked down and it was, yeah, coming apart. And I took it to the bike shop. And that's when I noticed that this crank was actually glued together. It's two pieces of aluminum that's glued. And I guess it's like a skeleton and hollow on the inside. And that's what saves weight. But I had the Ultegra. It was a really nice crank, but I was definitely not impressed with a glued together crank. But I think... It might have been under warranty and they replaced it i can't remember if i had to buy a new one or not it was quite a long time ago and i rode again for another year or two and the crank came apart again and what i noticed was like my crank arm was starting to tap the uh, chainstay which meant it was a uh, bending or something like that and this one came apart in a slightly different way but was the same thing it was splitting apart because it was glued together and I went to the bike shop and I think it was out of warranty by then and they said yeah this is a thing man we're seeing a lot of this and they suggested or maybe I thought of buying a SRAM what is it force which is I I was like what's the equivalent in a SRAM and they said oh force ordered that thing and beautiful crank and it was uh carb it is cuz I'm still using it solid carb carbon fiber Arms on the thing and had no problems with my crank ever since then. So, all this stuff that you hear about with these cranks, you're like, Oh, who could this possibly affect? This is old, dude. I had two of them, <laughs> and they're talking about Shimano. Shimano is a massive company, they make all kinds of stuff. It's but they were like, This could it could bankrupt Shimano? I don't really think so, but it is really interesting, you know, you have a lot of faith in your bike that it's built well and the parts. You know, can't possibly be faulty because they've been making bicycles for a hundred something years. And no, you definitely can buy parts that are not well made. And the scary thing is how long it's taken Shimano to finally admit it that they had a problem with these cranks. And basically what happens is is when you epoxy glue two things together and then you get sweat in it. The sweat eventually works its way into the seam of the two pieces and then starts corroding and then the corrosion actually expands and then it splits apart the pieces that make up the crank arm. It's just kind of messed up. So I just wanted to squeeze that into the show that I didn't want to sit on that for too long. All right.